We're going to open to Matthew chapter 26. Last time we talked about the Passover that has been slightly reconstituted as the Lord's Supper, or as we kind of call it, the communion. We talked about the different elements that were there. We made mention of the fact that two of the elements kind of take a back seat, which is the sacrificial lamb that was killed in the afternoon on Nisan 14, not Nisan Maxima, but 14th day of Nisan. And then was eaten that evening, along with all your intimate family members as part of the Passover tradition. That lamb in this picture is kind of not represented. It's very minimally mentioned. And we talked about how that's possibly or due in part to the fact that Jesus was our great sacrificial lamb. But also I think it's it's pointing to a future of the church that's being constituted in these moments that will have a new emphasis on a finished work, not a recurring work. And we looked at the book of Hebrews where um, I think it's in uh, somewhere around chapter 10. I really shouldn't quote chapters because I always quote them wrong. Um, But somewhere around chapter 10, maybe either 10 chapters before or a few chapters after um, somewhere in there. You know, he makes the point of saying that he once and for all perfected forever, okay, the saints that were sanctified. So he, the, the image that we get from this meal is that going forward, we're not going to constantly re-sacrifice a lamb because the work has been finished and done. And we're, we're organizing a new kind of model going forward. So we focused more on the bread being the bread of life. The continual thing, the thing that's going to continue to sustain this new life, okay? Instead of focusing so much on the life sacrificed, you're focused on the life to live because of the sacrifice, amen? So that's part of of the meal. The other part was the bitterness of the herbs, the bitter herbs, which is basically just like salad greens, okay? Which is why I always believe you should have dressing on your salad. Um, I did have a roommate for a very long period of time that y'all well know that just eat salads without salad dressing. And I'm kind of like, it's called salad dressing for a reason because it's not meant to be naked, okay? We've already proven that in Genesis, nudity was covered up because it's part of the fall. So you don't want a naked salad. You need to dress that bad boy because otherwise it's bitter, nasty greens, okay? So the bitter herbs here that he's talking about are just bitter greens, bitter, um, you know, greenery that was eaten at that point in time. But those had a... a kind of memorial of the bitterness of the slavery in Egypt. And again, sacrifice achieved salvation and freedom. Sacrifice removed the bitterness of slavery because we are no longer slaves, okay? So that's why those two elements, I think, kind of take a back seat. And that's why when we have the time that we celebrate as communion or the Lord's Supper, we don't sit down and eat unleavened bread and bitter herbs, okay? We also don't go out and kill any lambs. I think there's a lot of people who would be okay with that. So that's why we talked about the Passover meal taking on this new kind of meaning, this new substance for the new church that was being kind of born out of all this. Now we kind of come to a conclusion of it. Okay, and that's where we're getting to in verse 30. And again, this moment in verse 30 starts 
kind of the clock, okay? We have we talked about how the Passover meal was kind of that last thing. These chapter 26 is talking about the next two days I'm going to be taken, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be raised again. So those we've already started kind of that timer down to this last day. Well, now we're talk, starting the timer into the last hours. And hours are going to be marked throughout the rest of this story. It's very interesting, okay? Because you have, as they conclude this service, this communion, okay, you have them go out. You have, as kind of just a brief overview of all this, we know there's the moment where Jesus says, Tonight, every one of y'all are going to scatter and be offended because of me. And they're all like, No, not us. We would never do that, Lord. We'll follow you to the death. And, you know, just kind of reiterating for all of us our fickleness, okay? But in particular, you see Peter's command no 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 all of them will give up on you lord but i never will because i'm peter i'm the rock you know i'm not not going anywhere but christ tells peter as we know he says peter before this night is out you will deny me three times before the rooster crows twice you will deny me three times okay If you look back historically, you know, we always think about roosters only crowing like at four or five in the morning. If you've ever grown up on a farm that had roosters, you know how much fun that is, okay? How much fun it is to hear a rooster wake you up at four o'clock and you go, I was not intending to get up at this point. So you have this kind of time where the rooster is marking time. we're, We're familiar with that, but... These roosters back then, actually, they crowed like all during the night, which would be just all the more reason to kill that rooster, okay? One of the most important times it crowed, though, was about 1 o'clock in the morning. Again, reiterating the fact that this rooster needs to die. But there's this, there's this kind of marking of time that you see. Jesus doesn't just say, before this night is out, you're going to deny me three times. He says, before the rooster finishes its crowing, you're going to deny me three times. Meaning there's going to be two different occasions that you're going to get me. And it's probably around one and three o'clock in the morning. So we're marking time by Peter's denial. Then we go forward and we start marking time again because it will talk about how Jesus was taken to be tried at the sixth hour. And then at the ninth hour, the sun would go dark in the ninth hour till the twelfth hour. You know, you have all these times being marked out and it's all these last hours being marked out around Jesus's capture, trial, crucifixion and death. So when we start talking about the last hours here, they literally are the last hours. We're getting the hours ticked off here for us. So I want you to kind of, again, as we've been talking about this, to put yourself in the moment. Think about these hours, these next few hours that we're going to talk about with Jesus. So starting in verse 30 of chapter 26 of Matthew, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then said Jesus to them, all of you shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter answered and said to him, though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. And Jesus said to him, verily, I say to you that this night before the cock crows, thou shalt deny me three times. Peter said to him, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise, also said all the disciples. That's that whole camaraderie thing. Yeah, Lord, we're in it too. 
Then cometh Jesus with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then says he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even to death. Tarry here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. And he comes to his disciples and finds them asleep and says to Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then came he to his disciples and said to them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. So the context of this that we have is Jesus entering into his last hours of life on earth. The last time the disciples will be with their Messiah and his agony in the garden. It's important for us to grab from this section of scripture as we have kind of tried to dissect out all these areas. Different kind of themes that you see going on. Here you see this theme of intimacy. Intimacy with Jesus, with his disciples, intimacy with Jesus and his father. And then also the theme of agony that you see in the garden and Jesus's humanity being on full display. Probably woven all together, this all kind of speaks to Jesus's pure 100% humanity. Okay, And that's what we're going to see as we kind of go through this. And that's really one of the most important points to grab from this. Okay. So think about this. If you're going to be leaving on a journey for a long time, what's the last thing you would want to do? How would you handle it? And what about the friends and the family you've left behind? So think about that in your mind as we're reading through this. You're getting ready to go on a long journey. What would you do? How do you prepare for that? What's the last thing that you would do? If we're going to leave out, you know, we've probably checked everything. We've made sure we have four kids in the car and we're not leaving one behind. You know, that's always a liability. Making sure curling irons are unplugged, the lights are turned off, you know, hot water heaters aren't exploding in your, you know, garage. All these things that you want to make sure of before you leave on a long trip. Set the alarm, go out the door, and then worry that you missed something the entire trip, right? But, you know, you're usually texting and telling family members, hey... Goodbye, you know, every time we go to Africa, it's always a moment, okay, that is hard to deal with because you're going, you know, you're going a long way, you're going to be away for a while. Imagine though you're going and you're never coming back. Or have you ever had an event or a task that was coming up, and I know nobody's going to have this, but ever had an event or a task that's coming up that you just dreaded with all your soul? Did you procrastinate on that event or that task? Put it off to the last moment? 
wait to the last minute to go through with it? Did you avoid it with all cost or maybe even look for an excuse to get out of it? That's when an exploding hot water heater comes in real handy. I would love to be there. Trust me. But, sorry, this has happened. So, you see here, though, when Jesus has concluded this kind of communion time with his, with his disciples that he was about to leave. And the bodily, fleshly Jesus, messianic, you know, uh, form that he was in, he was going to be departing from this. And the last thing that he does before he departs from them as a group, okay, remember we spoke last time about the communio sanctorum, this sanctified group, this sanctified body. Before he leaves them, before they depart, it says they sang a hymn and then they left. So when we ask, what would you do before you went on a trip? What would you do before you left? What, what would you do? You, you normally would incorporate, especially if you had really close friends or family, you're going to incorporate some kind of a little thing before you do that, right? We have send-off parties. We have event, We have things that we do to kind of bring us all back together to hug and fellowship and kind of unify us before we depart so that we can feel like we're taking something with us and also the inevitable fear that this might be the last time that we get to do this. Notice that the last thing that they did corporately, you know, besides running away from Jesus, which they did corporately as well. But, you know, the last thing they did corporately was to sing a hymn. Now, not that there's any reason why anybody would not want to sing in church. But if you needed any encouragement or justification for your singing... Here it is. Jesus sang hymns. Remember when we've gone back and talked about how we are to be followers of Jesus Christ and do what he did. And we went through all the things about loving your enemies and loving your neighbors and all those big, important, massive things. To be called followers of Jesus Christ, we have to follow Jesus in everything he did. And he sang hymns. So two statements that I would make on the front of this about Christians singing and praising. Number one, if you know all the words to summer of 69, friends in low places, living on a prayer, or maybe for my millennial friends, if you know all the words to say it ain't so, shake it off or despacito, okay, and you sing them at the top of your lungs. Congratulations. You already know how to praise. Okay. In fact, you're actually praising very loudly in those moments. Just maybe not the best of things. If you can do it with those songs, you can do it with songs praising God. I promise. If you don't really like singing in front of people, this is the second thing. If you don't really like singing in front of people, 
I would say refer to the last statement because do you only sing those songs in private or are there occasions when you have joined in jolly revelry with other people singing these songs loudly at the top of your voice? And I'd say I know that I have and am guilty of that. So I don't think we only do it in private, but maybe you just do it in the shower. Maybe that's the only time you sing that. Then you're going to really hate heaven. Because it's going to be a lot of praising for a long time. With a whole lot of people. So it, it causes us to kind of dive into this. That this is an essential thing. This wasn't something done, number one. And it's something we do need to recognize too. This was not done ritualistically. This was not like Jesus was saying, okay, well, we're now closing out the communion service. And the way we close out the communion service is to sing a song. That's not what they were doing. They were singing because they were expressing heartfelt things in a corporate fashion. And the way that they did that was singing. It's been done throughout the ages. Okay, there's something innately within us that drives us to express ourselves in song. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. But Thomas Aquinas, who was a 13th century church writer, had this statement about hymns and songs. A hymn is the praise of God with song. A song is the exaltation of the mind dwelling on eternal things bursting forth in the voice. So what Aquinas was getting at was that music, songs, etc. in and of themselves are human expressions of eternal, internal struggles. Okay? Hymns and spiritual songs are an appropriate response to this. The thong song is probably an inappropriate response to this. Okay? But both of these, both of these kind of genres here are striving with the same issue, okay? And that is the internal, eternal anxieties, love, war, hate, joy, happiness, sadness, which are part of the human condition, okay? So you ask yourselves, why do we sing? Why is there music? There's been music going all the way back to Genesis. You can find there where Jubal was, as in jubilation, Jubal, okay, was one of the original ones who made instruments, okay? And you find that in this example, you kind of have all of human history is tied back to this musical thing, okay? And we talked about just like with any other expression of the soul that we have here in this world, whether it's painting, art, you know, whatever it may be. Song, singing, music. You know, you think about around Christmas time, we have Handel's Messiah, okay? Gorgeous piece of music, okay? Written all about the Messiah. There are secular verse as well as ecclesiastical expressions of internal things, and it's usually expressed in music or with songs. That's why, you know, you can listen to some songs without any music and you can feel a kind of an emotional thing going on. Have you ever watched a movie and you know the scene in the movie, but then you go and listen to the soundtrack without the movie and the soundtrack, the music in the soundtrack elicits and a response without the movie being present. It's because there's something hardwired within us that music can bring out. And it's because guess what? God created music, all right? 
That wasn't some kind of sinful creation of the devil. God created it just like he created beauty and life and painting and everything else. All these things that are internal gifts given by God are expressed in these magnificent ways. And they resonate with us in our hearts and our souls because God put it there for that purpose. It's just unfortunately when we broke the universe, we messed it up. And that's how you get songs like the thong song. So that's where you see the warping of this beautiful thing that God had given us. But when a pure, true, glorious of ex- expression of it is made, you get the same kind of resonating within your soul. So that's what he's kind of hinting at. The hymns and these songs and things are these beautiful expressions of these internal, eternal things that are going on inside our hearts. And they're pouring out through song and praise and those kind of things when they're poured out in the appropriate manner. Now, him here that they use him in and of itself, by the way, is a Greek word. Okay, um, him is the hymnos. Okay, or hymneo, which is basically just a song of praise. Or in reference here, it's usually in reference to a psalm. Okay, so song of praise, or in reference to a psalm, the word him itself um, is typically related to the. Well, I'm sorry, the, the word psalm that we see, and, you, and we're going to look at a little verse that talks about that. But the word psalm that is used, again, it, there's a, that's a Greek okay, origin from that. Um, the psalm is solos, okay? and usually that means a song of praise accompanied by a harp, okay? sung in praise and honor to God. So you've got these two words that kind of mean the same thing. Um, both of them are referencing songs that are used in praise of God. So that's what he's talking about here when he says they sang a hymn and departed. Now, the hymns that we typically think of are a little bit different of what they were singing at that point in time. Okay, Most of the time when the word hymn here is used, it's referencing the Psalms. And in fact, there's kind of a historical thing that if you look at Jewish writers, they'll talk about how the Halal feast, which was the Passover feast, was concluded with the singing of a hymn. And that hymn was usually Psalm 115 to 118. Okay, So it's a long song. All right, But that's what was typically sung at the end. That's probably what they sang here. But so they're referencing back that this hymn is not... Amazing Grace, okay? It was probably the Psalms, three of the different Psalms that are there written by David so many years ago. Hymns that we typically refer to are like Amazing Grace, and if you notice, a lot of those are written around the 16 to 1700s, and that's not what, you know, Peter and James and Jesus would have been singing at that time, obviously. But I do think it's interesting to note there's a reason why, if you notice in our songbooks, a lot of the songs are from the 15, 16, 17, 1800s. Okay? And that's because before the 1500s, they didn't really exist like we know them today. Okay? Before that, there was actually kind of an argument within the church and it was outlawed to sing anything but the Psalms because they viewed them as quote unquote modern additions. All right? I know you've never heard that before. So actually, anything but the Psalms being sung in a church congregation was kind of outlawed because it was viewed as this modern addition. So you didn't have people like John Newton and others going out and writing psalm or writing songs that might have taken biblical themes and put them to tunes. It was rather, you sang the Psalms and that was it. 
And the reason why you kind of see this uptick around the 1500s is because Martin Luther, who came in and reformed the church at that point in time, caused a resurgence of him singing and him writing by writing his famous hymn, which is Ein Festeberg ist unser Gott, which is better known as A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So that's, that hymn that he wrote actually spurred this kind of snowball effect. And that's why you have all these hymns written by John Newton and Isaac Watts and all these around that time from the 1500s on. So it's an interesting historical tie-in there if you've ever flipped up and go, why are we reading all these psalms from people who died in the 1500s? Well, that's why. A lot of them were written in the 1500s, and they're really great. Okay. So why do we sing hymns and psalms? Why should we sing hymns and psalms? Why is that an important aspect of kind of our corporate gathering? Okay. If you remember, there's a verse, you know, there's always a verse for everything, right? There's a verse written by Paul to the church at Colossae that said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. So Paul's encouragement to the church at Colossae was to utilize... Singing. Utilize singing within your organized body of believers as a part, an integral part, of what you're doing together. Okay? So we talk about having time where we're singing psalms and songs, and it's probably, you know, there's anything you get involved with, give it a hundred years and it will become a tradition or a ritual. Okay. That's just how nature is. Get anything started that's organic and grassroots. And in a hundred years, it's going to be a tradition or a ritual. All right. So we ritualize a lot of stuff. Like I said, sometimes we will close out, quote unquote, close out a service with the singing of a song. Okay. So we look at that song as just the way you close out a service, right? Okay, same thing with how we enter into with our songs in the church body when we gather together. A lot of times we get very ritualized and it is, this is the time to sing songs. This is our song service. This is the time that we allot for this and we don't allot any time before and after. It gets very ritualized. But that's not how it is designed in the Bible, Okay. Go back and look at any times where songs were kind of brought to the forefront in moments. They were spontaneous moments of joy and praise and adoration for God. Okay. When David is writing his psalms, he is writing them at moments of divine inspired adoration, glory, and praise to God. Okay. Now he then assigns them to be sang inside the temple service, but he wrote them in a moment of adoration. Right? They're supposed to be sung in a moment of adoration. So when we sing them in church, when we sing them as a corporate body, they should be sung as moments of adoration, right? I mean, that's the whole point behind them. Otherwise, we're just singing these old songs, these hymns that some dude wrote in the 1600s, and we're just doing it because that's the ritual of what we do for 30 minutes before the preaching service and one more at the end of the service to close out the service. I mean, that's, that's how it gets ritualized. But that's not what they're there for. They're there to be an integral part of the corporate body's existence. How it functions together. 
Here, Jesus uses this moment to be the last pivotal moment with his disciples. If it was just a ritual, just like what would we do, we could say, hey, we're going to not do this song today because of X, Y, Z. Jesus didn't use this as saying, hey, I'm going to die in a few hours, but let's make sure we get the box checked on singing a song to close out the halal service, okay? That's not what he's doing. He's having a corporate moment of worship with his most beloved disciples before he goes to die. There's emotion and passion wrapped up in this moment. It's not just a thing, and they sung a hymn. It's not just a thing for them. This wasn't just a thing for Jesus. He wanted to do this just like he wanted to eat the Passover, and just like he wanted to wash their feet. He wanted to sing a song with them that was in praise and honor for the great God who he was about to get very close to over the next several hours. So it's extremely important. Songs kind of re, go resurge and ebb and flow throughout the entire scriptures. And you'll notice that, that Paul does use three kind of categories there. I kind of encourage us not to strictly categorize. There is not just a psalm and just a hymn and just a spiritual song. Okay. In fact, you could even argue that maybe all three of those are speaking about all basically the same things. Okay. Cause a psalm is a spiritual song. Do we get that? Okay. If you're singing a psalm, you're singing a spiritual song. Okay. That's also a hymn as we saw here. So you have those overlapping in all sorts of different ways, but there are things that you could classify that were not technically written psalms by David. Okay, that were spiritual songs or hymns that were sung by the early church. One of those that you look at, if you go back into the very earliest earlies, okay, when you see Adam in the garden, when God gives him Eve, when he breaks out and starts say, saying, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, all that stuff, he's not just speaking that because that's weird. He's actually singing that. That's a song. That's an old, old song, okay, where Adam was so overjoyed and raptured with the gift that God had given him that he actually broke out into song singing, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I don't have a tune for that or else I could, you know, do that. So, but that was a song, okay? That's why it's written in a poetic verse format, okay? You also have when, when Miriam, right after the, the Red Sea event, you have Miriam burst up on the scene with tambourines and a host of other people singing this song, this spiritual song, this hymn, okay? A song of praise to God for his mighty triumph at the Red Sea. And then you have Moses' song, this song at the end of Deuteronomy. You have these other songs that fall into a category of not Davidic psalm, but fall into a category of hymn or spiritual song. And of course, we have all of our hymns that have been written. Here's the, the beautiful thing about it. God continues to inspire people to write hymns or spiritual songs, okay? Even up to present day. You know, there's a lot of people sometimes that will like poo-poo on different aspects of, of church stuff. And one of them is the singing thing. They're like, oh, all the new stuff is just so bland. It has nothing like the, the hymns of the 1600s. It's like, yeah, and you know what? In the 1600s, people were saying, we shouldn't be singing these. These are modern additions to the church. And we should only sing the songs. It's just a thing, okay? We just do it. We've done it for like 2,000 years. And they did it all the way back through all of Judaish history too. It's all the same thing. We all have this human nature to resist this kind of stuff. But guess what? There are still beautiful hymns being written today. All right. So the, the spiritual songs, the Psalms, the hymns, they're all important and should all be included. 
You know, sometimes we don't necessarily go back and hit the Psalms, the actual Psalms. But they're fantastic. It's almost like they were written by God. It's almost like they had divine inspiration behind them. So, I mean, it's one of those things that you really need to take time and focus. And what I did at the beginning of this year, because I, I have a, um, a uh, app that I listen to, or try to at least. Um, you know, I kind of jokingly say I have a daily Bible reading that I don't do every day. So, uh, you can work that out yourselves. I have a daily Bible listening, okay? I try really hard as I'm, as I'm entering into Birmingham on my ride to flip on this app I have called Dwell that, um, will read out the different, you know, things. You can get it on different programs. There's all this different stuff, different voices and stuff. It's really kind of neat. Um, but I'll listen to that. And the Psalm 37 came up about last week and I listened to the parts of Psalm 37 and there's just a lot of really good stuff in Psalm 37. There's a lot of good stuff you'll find in a lot of different Psalms. That's why I encourage you to go back and read Psalms. Okay. Over and over again, because I promise you that every time you read it, you'll hit a chapter that you'll have things that stick out to you at different times in your life that didn't stick out to you in previous times in your life, because guess what? That's David's experience. Okay. There was times in his life that he was sitting on a mountaintop and times of his life. He was very much in the Valley. There's times where he's conquering, you know, battles for, for God. And then there's times that he's like, you know, committing adultery and killing men. So you've got a wide spectrum of human experience all in this one dude. And guess what? He writes about it. All right. So all that being said, the Psalms are a great, great resource, which is why a lot of people turn back to them as being their source of song worship. So it's important for us to notice that, okay? There's a lot of other things that you can grab. If you go back to 1 Samuel, you'll actually see an occasion where in 1 Samuel chapter 10, when Saul, okay, before David, when Saul was getting anointed as king, he was met by a group of prophets. And he was actually told by this that you're going to be, you're going to be changed in this moment. A group of prophets is going to come down. And when they do, they're going to start prophesying over you. And the Holy Spirit is going to land on you. And you're going to be a changed man. And you're going to start prophesying. And they did all of that while playing harps and lyres and tambourines and basically singing these prophecies. I mean, it's just, there's this all throughout the Bible. What you're going to find is that the music and the singing and the praise is kind of in all these different moments, which is why for us in this, we have to be careful about segmenting and ritualizing this time that we call the song service because it's not meant for that. It's meant, as Paul was telling the church at Colossae, as a moment of admiration, adoration, admonishment, support, praise, honor, glory, all to God. Now, we sometimes focus on the front part of that verse that he said at Colossians, say, see, you're supposed to be speaking to each other in these things. But notice how he says you're speaking to each other for the praise of God. That's your purpose. You know, that's what we're here for. That's what the songs being sung are for. They're not to be sung because that's just how I, you know, I like that tune. I always go back and I know there's probably plenty of people that get offended by it. But it's really important for us to make sure when we pick songs, we're picking the right songs. And yes, there are wrong songs to pick. Okay. Precious Memories is not a song to pick. Okay. That is my hobby horse. And I will continue to beat it till that horse is dead, gone, and cease to exist. Okay. It's not a praise song. It's not a song that should be sung as the corporate body of believers. If you want to sing it, 
in your home with whatever you want to sing, go for it. It is not for a Sunday morning, okay? You want to know why? Because it does not have a thing to do about Jesus. Neither does David's lamentation. That's another thing that really gets my goat, if you want to use that phrase. Guess what? It does not have anything to do with Jesus. And you can't even extrapolate some kind of Jesus monotone. You can't. You can't get it out of there. It's just a song people like to sing because it has a neat melody. Which is great if you want to sing that. Go for it. Just on Sunday morning when we're gathered together and we're supposed to be singing songs of praise and adoration to God, which speaks to each other but is ultimately towards God, we need to sing songs that are towards God. Okay? So that's important. And not only do we need to do the right songs, we need to sing out loud. We need to sing proud and be happy about what we're doing. It's about praise and adoration. Again, if you sing friends in low places with more enthusiasm than a song about the praise and honor and glory of God, then we have misplaced praise. And we need to work on that. It's not to make anybody feel bad. It's to encourage us to do better. And also it helps us to, if you want to use this phrase, to get more out of what we're doing. No wonder you don't like doing it because it's all done wrong. No wonder you don't feel whatever you want to feel about it because it's just the thing you do. And you sang that song because so-and-so liked that song. But that song really has nothing to do about Jesus, nor does it really speak to anybody. You know, I mean, that's the kind of thing that you get involved with. No wonder it becomes bland and lifeless because it's just a ritual. It's the thing that you do for 30 minutes. So it needs to be much more directed towards who it's supposed to be directed to, which is God. He then goes on to give what I call the prophecy of abandonment here, which is what we read, where he says, This night, all of you will flee from me. All of you will be offended. And he uses that word again that came up previously when he says, woe to those who offend one of these, my little ones. It was better than one of them have a millstone hung about their necks. This is not you offended me. I feel offended. I have been offended by the words you said. You stepped on my toes and now I'm offended. It's not that word, which is a problem with sometimes this English stuff that we do here because we think of offense as being what well, you have offended me you said my hair didn't look right you said something mean to me you hurt my feelings you offended me that has like nothing to do with what this word is here okay it is completely a completely different english word altogether all right what this word is is the greek word that we talked about scandalizo and again you go oh see scandal offense see that's what we're talking about no this scandalizo is a cause of falling away from God, a cause of stumbling from God, a cause of rejection of God, a cause of denial of God. That's what this word means. And that's all it means. Okay? You can't take this and go, well, the disciples got offended by Jesus. Jesus told them something they didn't like, so they got huffy and walked out because they were offended by him. If you're going to use that, then somehow Jesus offended his disciples, and now Jesus needs a millstone hung around his neck. You get what I'm saying? That's not what's going on here, okay? What's going on here is a rejection of Christ. That's what's going to happen. 
in a few moments, you are going to reject me. When it starts getting tough, you're going to run away from me. In a moment or two, Peter, you're going to outright deny me. All of you are going to be offended by me or because of me. In just a few moments, when everything goes pear-shaped and gets bad, when you see me, your Messiah, who you thought was your conquering king, who was going to reestablish the natural kingdom of Israel and cause this glorious revolution, and we were all going to sit on thrones, and everybody was going to be happy and hunky-dory, when you see me being taken away in chains by a gang of Jewish officials, you're done. You go, whoops. This didn't work out. The way. How, how is this going to play out? How are we going to have our kingdom if you're in prison or killed? And even worse than that, what happens to us? If they took Jesus and we, they know we were his compatriots, his co-conspirators, guess what? We're going to be taken too. We know that's kind of their mentality because all you got to do is flip over into the book of Luke and you'll find where at the end of all this, they're locked up in, the, in a room together. Okay, Three days after his crucifixion, when Jesus enters in, they're not just hanging out at Starbucks talking about how bad things are. They've got the door locked. It says, for fear of the Jews, they have locked the doors. They didn't just run from Jesus. They ran and hid from the Jews. When Jesus was captured, they've been hanging out with the doors locked for three days. So he says, you will be offended because of me. Well, what do you mean? Are you going to say something, Jesus? Are you going to do something that is offensive to them? I mean, look, Jesus has gone through his entire ministry. He has, quote, unquote, offended a lot of people. Okay. He's come up to him and said, hey, you know what? You're all a bunch of serpents going to hell. Deuces. You know, he's done a lot of things that would offend a lot of people. All right. Tells others that go and run away from him. He says, what? Do I not do enough miracles for you? Is there not enough bread you know, from stones? Have I not reproduced enough fish for you? Have I not done all these things? Are you too going to abandon me? So there's a lot of times where Jesus has caused a ruckus all right, amongst his hearers. That has caused plenty of people to be offended by what he has said and leave. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus doesn't say anything to them in the next hour. He goes and prays by himself. Maybe they got offended because he walked away from them. Maybe they got offended because he only took Peter, James, and John. Who knows? But what really happened here was they stumbled at the fact that their Messiah got arrested. And they stumbled because of their fear of what would happen to them. So they ran away. We see this expressed in Peter, which is why... You know, you always have to ask these questions like, why did things happen the way they did? Why is this mentioned and this not? You know, all these things. Peter is mentioned here, and he says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times and all this stuff. And we get, okay, that's interesting. Why Peter? Why this moment? Why did all this happen and all these things? I think Peter's testimony is brought up for the fact that it shows us that even the strongest most dedicated, most, you know, over the top of the followers of Jesus Christ. Peter was a wild man. I mean, he would just step up to plate against anybody, didn't care, bad a thousand. I mean, he was just, that was Peter. He was that guy, okay? So to see him have fear of his own life 
so much that he would not just deny Jesus once or twice, but three separate times is a moment for us to take notice of. To show us that even with all of our swagger, we can still succumb to fear. Even as solid as we think we are, even as you know, big and bad as we think we are, even as got it together as we think we are, all these things, ultimately, we can all fall in the exact same pitfall that Peter did. We can decide that we fear the things of men, fear the things of whatever, more than we love and follow Jesus Christ. And again, this gets back into some of the stuff that started all these conversations. I do want to give myself a little bit of credit. I went back through my notes in, in all this series. I'm a little bummed because I can't find like the first four um, sections that I talked about. It starts in section five, which kind of bums me out. I don't know where they went to. Uh, maybe they were so awful that the Lord sovereignly erased them off my computer. Not sure. But you know, the whole reason we were going back to this was to reorient the church, the believers, the followers of Jesus Christ with the things Jesus Christ taught. And that that should be what we do. That's how we live. And we talked about how there is a dichotomy between living what Christ taught and your persona on Facebook as a Christian. Okay. This follows in with that. And I think is extremely applicable to that. Do you fear how the Facebook world, your buddies, the whatever, the, the local, you know, event of the day. However, do you fear their rejection at your comments more than you love and follow Jesus Christ? So you will say repost and do whatever to be in a group so that they'll all like you. And you'll instinctively, reflexively repost things that you really don't necessarily, if you got down to it, you don't necessarily agree with all. But man, you got to post it because you know what? That's what the group wants to hear. Do you fear the rejection on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram when you make a stand for Christ? Look, there's a lot of stuff going on right now that is very scary. And it's stuff that, I mean, look, when you have a writer of a Christian magazine that's been doing it for decades, get death threats from Christians because they make a negative comment about the president, you've got a big problem. Now, not everybody wants to agree or like that. But when all you say is a negative comment or a negative statement about Christians and allegiances and where your allegiance should lie and Christians respond with death threats to you? Do we not see a problem with that? Do we not see where this is kind of getting to a bad, bad, bad situation? So that's the kind of stuff, that's what's been on my heart for two years. That That's what I was going to say. I did it two years ago, not three, okay? I keep saying three years. It was 2017, all right? January 2017. I've only been at this for two years. We're good, okay? I'm going to say it's two. We're going to fast forward. Exactly. It's the only math that matters. 
But you look here with with how it's been going over these years and you get very scared at where we started from just three years ago. Just three years ago where we have come to. All right. So that's important. That's what's been on our hearts this entire time to worry about those things, to be concerned about those things, to make sure we're not easing ourselves into those things? Do we fear man and his designs? Do we fear the group mentality? Do we fear getting left out? Do we fear all these things more than our love for Jesus Christ? Here he says, I'm going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. It's an interesting phrase because what you see is Christ initially saying, you're all going to be offended by me and leave. But he says, but there's this like prophecy where we're going to strike the sheep, uh, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That comes from Zechariah chapter 13, which I think I probably don't have time to read it all. But where you get to the points that that matter the most, he's gone through here and Zechariah is prophesying about this time that's going to hit Israel. And it's really interesting because the things he talks about hits Israel Right when Jesus is talking about it, Jesus is prophesying about this coming abandonment and Jesus's prophecy is actually a re-prophecy of things that Zechariah prophesied a few hundred years ago. I mean, that's kind of an amazing fulfillment that you see going on here. Secondary in that, though, and what Jesus doesn't bring up is something we've actually talked about in the last few chapters. Okay. He says, smite the shepherd, or I'm sorry, O sword against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, says the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall scatter and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, says the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and I will refine them as silver is refined and I, and will try them as As gold is tried, they shall call upon my name and I will hear them. I will say it is my people and they shall say the Lord is my God. Interestingly enough, what that what that kind of reminds me of is what we were talking about just a few chapters ago with the destruction of the Jewish state in AD 70. Again, it may not be 100 percent, but it sounds very close to it. I'm going to wipe out the majority and leave a remnant. I'm only going to save a remnant. I'm only going to deliver a remnant. Here he says, I'm going to wipe out two thirds and only save one third. That one third, I'm then going to take. We're going to put them through the fire. We're going to put them through trials. We're going to refine them. We're going to bring them up. And in the end, they're going to say, this is my people. I am your people. You are my God. This is where we come to. So I think it's an interesting prophecy because whereas Jesus is tied to this, You also have the last part of that that's come to fulfillment as well or will come to fulfillment. I know what I was thinking about that is my notes start in March. We're not three years yet. So I'm going to quit before then. How about that? I'm going to get done in February and say it's not a full three years. Um, So that's where you get with this prophecy. Exactly. That's all that matters. Don't quote me on math this morning. So in this point... 
In this moment, you have a prophecy being fulfilled. You're all going to be scattered when Jesus is smited. You smite the shepherd, the sheep will flee. It's a divine act of God. God says, I'm going to smite the shepherd. And we know that happens. We know that everything that goes on with this is not out of kind of concert with what God had been planning all along. Nothing in this comes out of the blue to God. In fact, God even says, I'm doing this. I will smite the shepherd. There's sovereign acts that are going on in this moment. Jesus' crucifixion is a sovereign act of God. That is something that God purposed and planned for this entire kind of scheme that's been going on since before the world began. It is the sacrifice that has been waited on. And here he says involved within that is not just the sovereign act of the cross, but that actually the smiting of the shepherd and the sheep fleeing is part of that as well. But interestingly enough, Jesus blames the people. You will be offended by me today. You will flee from me. There's this, again, this weird mix that always goes on of how God is sovereignly working in our lives and in events and things that go on. But he never looks at us and say, oh, don't worry about it. It's not on you. I did that. He always looks at them and says, you follow me. You love me. You do what I say to do. I'm going to create you. I'm going to make you. I'm going to give you all facilities. You are still called to obedience. And here he says, and you will ultimately flee. But there's also woven into this, this beautiful prophecy of return. This is the fourth or fifth time that Jesus has told his disciples, I'm going to come back. Five times now. And again, we're not working on math this morning, so I may be less or more. Five times now that he has told them, You will be seeing me again. I'm going to die, but I'll meet you again. He says, I'll return and actually lead the way for you into Galilee. That's why when you see on the road to Emmaus, that's where they see Jesus again. It's like almost he was keeping the thing he said he was going to do. Emmaus was like seven miles out to the northwest of Jerusalem on the way back up the west side to Galilee. Peter and them were on their way home. They were saying, hey, we're out of here. We're done. Jesus meets them on the road, walks with them. Once they get to the village, they end up turning around and coming all the way back. And then Jesus meets them in Jerusalem. And then Jesus meets them again when they get to Galilee. And then all and over and over and over again, Jesus continues to do what he promised he was going to do. You almost get this sense of like, why can't you get this, guys? Why can't you see this? Why can't you grasp this? We'd like to think we would do better, but probably wouldn't. But there's a beautiful testimony in here that Jesus over and over again has said, yes, I'm going to go away, but I am going to come back. Don't despair. Don't lose hope. I'm returning. So in this moment, you see the desperation and the failure of disciples, which should make us all feel a lot better about ourselves. But also in this moment, you have these sweet promises of God about his return. That's what's going to get into the next section that's really important. And I'm going to try really hard in five minutes to tell you all about it. So here, buckle up. In this section, this last section, remember we've got to get done by March. Uh, in this last section, 
You have Jesus praying in the garden. You have a moment where Jesus enters into conversation with his father. You have Jesus' display of humanity in full effect. P.S. We're the only religion that has ever existed, exists, or will exist that believes that the God deity dwells as a human. Okay? The only one. Hindus will come down as avatars, but not humans. Zeus would come down as animals and humans and would represent them, but was still God. He just looked like them. He put on a robe, but it didn't really look, you know, he looked like a human, wasn't actually human, could not be. In fact, all the philosophies will say that the deity is so anti the created order that it can never be fully flesh, fully human. Jesus is the only one that's ever done it. Jesus is the only one that teaches that. Jesus is the only one that says, I'm fully human. And here we see that he is sorrowing. In fact, he says, I'm sorrowing so intensely that it's even almost to death. So his humanity is on full display here for us. Something that we really should grab because, you know, I'm going to break these news to you. You're going to have sorrowful moments in your life. Are we in agreement on that? In fact, you're probably going to have more than one. Jesus had one. And what I would say and argue not to diminish anybody's sorrowful moment, Jesus' sorrowful moment was beyond anything we could ever comprehend. It was multifaceted. It wasn't just the impending death. It wasn't just the rejection of the Jews. It wasn't just the rejection of his disciples. It wasn't just the rejection of the Father. It was all that stuff, plus all the sins, plus everything. And it was all laid on him and he was sorrowful about what was going to happen. And he even asks his father in prayer, Lord, if it's possible, can you just let this pass? I know a lot of times some people try to kind of hem around that and make that into something like Jesus wasn't really asking not to do what he was about to do. But I have always believed this is Jesus asking, Lord, is there another way? Is there another way besides me actually going through with this Lord Can you let this pass without me having to go through it? Because otherwise it doesn't make any sense for him to say, yet not my will be done, but your will be done. This is a crucial moment that does not need to be diminished at all. Jesus, in full display of his humanity, was begging God for help in a situation that he was sorrowful, fearful, about you say well why don't you want to not want to diminish that because this is for us this is where he says in the book of hebrews that he had endured all this sorrow so that you could endure all the sorrow you're going to endure in your life because he went through it and now he is able to support those of his who are going to go through it don't take that away from this Jesus says his whole purpose was to come for this so that we would have a high priest who was afflicted like we were, suffered like we were, endured like we were, was victorious like he has promised us we would be. Remember, Jesus didn't just endure this and suffer through it and come out on the other side. It says he conquered this. And then in Romans, he says, and you are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. So all this together points us to a reality that we are conquerors in Jesus Christ as he conquered the things that he went through in this world. 
So don't diminish that at all. It's a huge reality. The other things that are important to grab out of this section is that he didn't do it alone. Notice how he takes three of his closest disciples with him. It's a mark for us to remember that we are necessary to each other within the body of Christ. And unfortunately, that means that we are going to have to enter into awkward and weird situations. And we're not going to necessarily know what to say or do. And I can just go ahead and admit to you that I'm like chief of those people. I'm a huge fixer. And if I'm in a situation that I don't know how to fix, guess what? I get really weird and awkward and probably make the awkward situation more awkward because I like to fix things. Okay. I want the things fixed and I think I have been gifted to do it. So I want to try to fix it. But then you get in situations that you realize you can't fix like math. You can't fix it. Okay. It's unfixable and it grates on me. But when you, when I get into those situations, I get awkward because I don't know what to say, don't know what to do, don't know how to help. And I get really awkward about it. And guess what? That's okay because we're all awkward. Sometimes it's important. In fact, all the times it's just important for us to be there, be present. What were Peter, James and John doing? Absolutely nothing besides falling asleep. But Jesus wanted them there. It was a support for him. We need each other to support us. Even if we're just sitting on the couch in a room, we need each other to support us. It's essential. It's part of it. Everybody has their support system. The other thing here, and the most crucial person in this support system was God the Father. Okay? And he was the one that Jesus went to. Interestingly enough, you don't hear an answer to Jesus' prayer. Have any of y'all ever had silent prayers? You prayed and you prayed and you heard nothing and you go, maybe this whole prayer thing isn't working out. Maybe I'm not doing it right. Remember, we've talked before about how Jesus is the only person who really did prayer right every time. And yet even Jesus had prayers that weren't answered. And Jesus had prayers that weren't answered the way that he wanted it to go. Jesus is praying here. There's no answer on the other end other times you'll see god booming with a loud voice going this is my beloved son hear ye him that kind of deal here and actually tying back to a psalm you can read it think it's psalm 34 he'll talk about how he groaned in his spirit cried out to the lord you have not answered my prayer it's probably why jesus went back three different times but in this you see jesus ultimately in the end Coming to the conclusion, coming to the response, coming to the statement that really is how we all should enter into prayer with our Father. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. We're all going to, like Jesus, have times of prayer, have times of problems, have times of issue where we are faced with problems we cannot get through. And the number one place we need to turn to is... God our Father. But there are plenty of times that I think we would all agree that we come away from there going, I just don't, I still don't know what to do. I still don't know how this is going to go. I still don't know what the ultimate answer is. Or we know what we're about to face. We know the trial. We know the situation. And ultimately we go, I don't really want to do that. I don't really want this. I don't really want to go through this. I don't really want to endure this. Notice the language he used in Zechariah. I'm going to save this one third and then I'm going to put them through the fire. Thanks, God. That sounds great. That's an awesome vacation. Looking forward to it. Sometimes we're faced with trials and things like that, that we are 
going into and our ultimate fleshly desire is, you know what? I really would just like to avoid that if we could. How about this? Just make everything great. Never let me have to suffer or have any problems. That would be awesome. Don't let me have to deal with the hard stuff. That would be perfect. Thank you. Jesus was at a moment where he said, you know what, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup, let this tribulation, let this trial, let this thing pass from me. You say, man, that's tough to hear Jesus say that. He's just representing us. He's giving hope for us. He's showing us that in these moments of intense, amazing sorrow, depression, and despair, he was desirous in his sorrow to maybe see that sorrow pass. But ultimately, what he gave over to was, not my will, but your will be done, Father. If it's your will that I'm to go through with this, then let's do it. Because I know you are a good, good father. And that whatever you have in your will for me in this moment, whatever it may be, whatever trial, whatever issue, whatever suffering I may go through in this moment, I know that you're not some sadistic deity looking to inflict a little pain on me for your own cosmic pleasure. But that rather you love and care for me as a child that you have died for. And so I know that where I may not be able to see exactly how this is going to go or what's in it for me or whatever, I still know that you are a good, righteous, holy father. And so I trust in your will. I trust in what you have laid out here for me. I trust like Jesus did that even if I'm facing death, I can know and trust in whatever you have designed in this that's kind of how like shadrach meshach and abednego said you know what we go into the fire not sure if he's going to deliver us i know he can if we ultimately die no loss there whatever god desires in this moment will happen and we're going to submit to whatever god would have the song that we sang while the i seek protecting power the last verse he says resigned when storms of sorrow lower my soul shall meet thy will my lifted eye without a tear the gathering storm shall see and my steadfast heart shall know no fear that heart shall rest on thee i'm going to look at the storm i know it's coming it's gathering on the horizon maybe i pray to god please don't let that storm hit me I don't really want to go through a storm, but you know what? In the end, I look at it without a tear or fear because I know let go and let God. Whatever may be will be. And I trust in the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe to get me through whatever that is. May God bless us in that.